Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, a presentation of Confluence Investment Management. Today's subject is China. Anti-China alliance building was identified by Confluence as one of the key geopolitical trends of 2021. Today, we'll focus on the U.S. relationship with China and how the rivalry between the two countries is incorporated into the investment strategies which govern model portfolios at Confluence. Our guest is Confluence Investment Management Market Strategist, Patrick Thierry Hernandez. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Before we begin, we want you to know that a five-part series on China written by Patrick is available by clicking on the weekly geopolitical report tab on the front page of confluenceinvestment.com. These reports compare U.S. and Chinese national interests, military strength, economic power, and diplomatic influence. There are some very handy tables in these reports, making for some easy comparisons. China is a lot of ground to cover, but Patrick, I was impressed by how economically you accomplished the task. Because of the complexity of this subject, lots of aspects to consider, we thought it would be best to uh, divide our conversation into two easily listenable parts. Part one today will focus on national goals and the military rivalry, and in part two, we'll concentrate on economics and soft power. First, Patrick, tell us how your background helped you approach this subject. Well, first, thanks for having me on the show, Phil. And regarding your question, actually, writing up this report was a bit of a homecoming for me since it took me back to my early career stint as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Specifically, I worked in the branch that analyzed the nexus between the Soviet and then the Russian military and the country's overall economy. It gave me a pretty good sense of how a country's military military power, economic power, and diplomatic influence all interact with each other. Now that China has taken the place of the Soviet Union as the competing great power that the U.S. has to defend itself against, that skill set in CIA-style strategic intelligence analysis is coming in pretty handy. You say that the U.S.-China relationship has taken center stage globally and in the eyes of the American people. And it seems that This has happened fairly suddenly, but there is no doubt that this relationship with China now takes precedence over the U.S.-Russia rivalry, as well as America's Cold War focus on anti-communism. Yes, the U.S.-China rivalry is now the key relationship in international relations. Russia is still important, given its strategic nuclear weapons and its aggressiveness in using conventional and cyber warfare to promote its interests. But the reality is that Russia is a declining power. Other countries like Iran and North Korea also have the ability to hurt U.S. interests, but they're just not in the same league as China. Patrick, what are China's goals? To dominate globally, regionally, or maybe instead of dominating, just gaining what it sees as its fair share? Well, Phil, China has an authoritarian communist political system in which members of the Chinese Communist Party, and Chairman Xi in particular, are the key beneficiaries. Therefore, job one for the Chinese leadership is simply to preserve the country's current political system with them in charge. Like any country, another vital interest and key goal is to maintain China's territorial integrity and sovereignty. 
Finally, as a trading nation whose power relies heavily on its rapid economic growth, a final vital interest is probably to retain access to the Asian shipping lanes. Now, at first blush, all those goals may seem domestic or defensive. However, a country as big and aggressive as China will tend to interpret those interests and goals expansively. To best preserve its communist system, for example, Chinese leaders want to control the international environment and make it more friendly to their interests. Chinese leaders may say they only want to regain China's rightful role in the world, but in order to do that, they want to revise the world's current geopolitical and economic system, which is why the U.S. now considers them a revisionist power. You discuss in your written report the various ways China is working to achieve its goals. First, military strength, which we will concentrate on for the remainder of this conversation. The United States does appear to hold the advantage currently in terms of air power, but naval power, you argue, is a different story. How does naval power help China achieve its immediate goals? Well, the the critical theater where Chinese leaders believe their vital interests are most threatened is in the waters of the Taiwan Straits, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea. Chinese leaders interpret their interest in maintaining territorial integrity and protecting their sovereignty as requiring them to bring Hong Kong and, most important, the island of Taiwan, fully under Beijing's control. They interpret their commercial interests as directly maintaining open sea lanes between the Chinese coast and the rest of the world. Therefore, it makes sense for Chinese leaders to prioritize their naval capabilities in the waters around China. Indeed, they've already built up their naval and other forces in those waters to the extent that they may be able to deny access to U.S. forces or even vanquish them in a time of crisis. And if it ever came to that, you can imagine how much it would bolster the leadership's political position at home. I noticed a quote last week from a top U.S. admiral who warns that China could implement military action against Taiwan in the next six years. Forecast comes from Admiral Philip Davidson. And China doesn't seem to be objecting to his forecast. In fact, China doesn't seem to be hiding its intentions at all. Is the United States nearing a point where it may be unwilling to pay the costs of confrontation and cede control of Taiwan to China without a fight? Yes, that's one key risk. And remember that the U.S. now gets a really big share of its computer chips from foundries in Taiwan. So if China got away with seizing the island and those foundries, it could immediately transform itself into a world leader in advanced semiconductor production and cut off key U.S. supplies. Even worse, if the U.S. were proved to be impotent in the face of such an action, it would send a very bad signal to our other allies in the region that we couldn't protect them against China. That might force them to cozy up to Beijing. I'm not saying this is going to happen. It's just a growing risk. And as U.S. policymakers start to focus on that risk, it raises the chance of continued U.S.-China tensions in which investors could potentially be collateral damage. Let's turn from naval power to air power. Should we be alarmed that China seems to be catching up to the U.S. in air power? 
Yes, it's concerning. Granted, the Chinese military hasn't faced a land battle since its poor performance in Vietnam in 1979, and its last fleet naval battle was in 1895. Even though the Chinese military is trying to address that by making its training programs much more intense and realistic, there is still some question about how Chinese forces, including their air forces, would perform in real life. All the same, the U.S. way of war is heavily focused on air power. So as China develops its capabilities in that realm, including anti-air and anti-ship missiles, it has the potential to create an uncomfortable disruption to U.S. operations in a time of conflict. China has a sizable edge in active duty personnel, but its population is declining. A study by Lancet predicts China's population will drop by half by the end of the 21st century, while American population stays about the same. Should America be comforted by this trend? Well, for at least the next few decades, China will have far more personnel available to it than the U.S. and and any conceivable U.S.-led coalition. However, the effect of disparity may be less than meets the eye. For example, large numbers of Chinese ground forces have to be deployed along the country's vast inland frontiers, such as on the border with India in the Himalaya Mountains. Those forces would probably not be available to directly assist in a conflict around Taiwan or in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Moreover, U.S. personnel are probably better trained and experienced on average. Finally, as you mentioned, uh, yes, the military age population in the U.S. uh, is uh, growing modestly while China's is declining. What about nuclear strength? Are we nearing a point where the United States might fear a nuclear strike from China? Well, unfortunately, yes. And that's the case, even though the U.S. is likely to have far more nuclear weapons than China far out into the future. The problem is that China is both increasing the number of its warheads and its delivery uh, vehicles, but it's also making them more survivable. They're putting their missiles on rail cars and trucks that move along long tunnels deep underground. And they're even deploying ballistic missile submarines that are hard to track and could launch from the middle of the ocean or theoretically even from close to U.S. territory. Now, in nuclear strategy, the key thing is making sure that if the other side strikes first, enough of your weapons survive to inflict unacceptable damage to your enemy. That's the essence of the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. If China really is getting to the point where even a few of their missiles could survive a U.S. first strike, then the U.S. would be very reluctant to launch an attack on China, and the U.S. arsenal would become much less of a deterrent on the country. And again, as that risk dawns on U.S. military planners, it suggests that they'll push to rein in China, and that will likely keep U.S.-China tensions high. What about the cyber war? Do you consider cyber an extension of military, and, and where do we stand? 
Uh, essentially, yes, uh, cyber warfare occupies that gray area between traditional political power and military force, and it's become an essential part of Chinese strategy and military doctrine. Not only is cyber warfare considered to be an essential, continual, ongoing element of Chinese power projection, but Beijing's tactical doctrine emphasizes that in a conflict, it would try to establish local information dominance. In other words, to disrupt the enemy's intelligence and battlefield awareness and communications and maintain all those things for itself. It's a very explicit part of the way of war for modern China. And does China have aspirations in outer space as well that should concern us? And if so, where are these aspirations manifested? Similar to the situation with cyber warfare, China is focused heavily on preparing for conflict in space via capabilities like destroying or uh, disabling U.S. satellites. It's also recently deployed its own version of the global positioning system, meaning that it will no longer rely on it and could disable the U.S. GPS system during war without losing its own positioning capabilities. However, I don't want to sound overly alarmist. With all these new Chinese military capabilities that we've been discussing, they're possibly more dangerous in theory than in practice. The Chinese military hasn't been in a real conflict for decades, and if a real shooting war broke out, the U.S.'s operational experience and capabilities could win the day. Nevertheless, China's growing capabilities are likely to prompt ever stronger pushback from the U.S., which is likely to keep U.S. and Chinese tensions high and create risks for investors for some time to come. Thank you, Patrick. When we continue our conversation about China in part two, we'll focus on the economic competition between the two countries and take a look at soft power comparisons, as well as implications for investors. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed in this discussion are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our guest today has been Confluence Market Strategist Patrick Fiorent Hernandez. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can find us on Twitter at Confluence IM. Confluence.